Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, Bud Simon, current PhD student at Asbury Seminary and consultant with TMS Global, and Dr. Jay Moon, professor of church planning and evangelism at the seminary, join the podcast. Bud and his family served for 20 years as church planners in Brazil, and Dr. Moon spent 13 years in Ghana, Africa. In today's conversation, we talk about their recently released book, Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News in a Diverse World. They talk us through four common worldviews, help us learn how to recognize and engage those who may think differently than we do through conversation and friendship. Guys, they even developed an app to help us do that, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Jesus meets all needs, so we also talk about why it's important to present the gospel message in a way that makes sense to our friends and our neighbors right next door and around the world. And thanks to their generosity, listeners of the show receive a 30% discount when you order their book, Effective Intercultural Evangelism, at ivpress.com and use the code EVANG21, E-V-A-N-G-21. Let's listen. But Dr. Moon, I am so delighted to have you on the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for inviting us both. Yeah, yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about your new book, Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News in a Diverse World. But before we get into all of that, would you each take a minute to introduce yourselves? So Dr. Moon, if we could start with you. Sure. Yeah, I'm a professor of church planting and evangelism at the best seminary in all of Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury <laughs> Theological Seminary. Love being here. Also direct the Office of Faith, Work, and Economics for the last eight years. I've been here. And we're missionaries, my wife and I and four kids, uh, largely in Ghana, West Africa, for 13 years. And now um, it's been a, a pleasure to be able to write along with Bud this piece of work. I've done a few other books in the past, but this is um, like a lot of fun to do with Bud. Yeah, that's great to have a co-author. Yes. Yeah. Bud, what about you? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. My wife and I went to Brazil. We've been there. We were there for 20 years, and we were in the Amazon uh, jungle doing church planting. The Lord really blessed that a lot, uh, and there's quite a few churches planted during our time there. Uh, we felt like the Lord was saying it was time to move on from there and turn things over to the nationals. And so uh, concurrent with that, the Lord laid on my heart to pursue a Ph.D., and we landed at the best seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> so we came, moved here about uh, five or six years ago, and I've been working my PhD since then. Um, I still do mission consulting, uh, traveling to Latin America and Brazil, and doing conferences and teaching. And had a great this great opportunity to write this book with my academic mentor, uh, Jay Moon. So yeah, so I love that relationship piece there. How did this book come to be? Yeah, great question. I think both of us had similar journeys where when we went to another context, I went to Ghana, West Africa, and started to share the gospel with people. We learned the language, trying to understand the culture. And then you share the gospel the way we've learned, kind of like this um, kind of adapt- adaptation of four spiritual laws or something like that. And the people say, well, that's interesting, kind of. <laughs> but not really, you know. Yeah. And then they realize, you know, they don't feel guilt, internal guilt for their sin. So the way that we're taught in the West to share the gospel just doesn't really make sense to them. Mm. But when I describe the gospel in terms of uh, there's this curse put upon humanity, and therefore people have this fear of uh, evil like witchcraft, juju, etc., and that God promised that he would send uh, a redeemer to, to be the power of God to break that curse. Mm-hmm. And that's what Christ is. They're like, tell me more. So, and not because of us, but often in spite of us, after nine years, there are 25 churches now in this mm-hmm. Bolsa area. And the reason this book came about is, if we're starting at the wrong cultural starting point, then we may miss people and assume that they're not interested in the gospel, as opposed to perhaps we've given like the wrong starting point to get it, the conversation mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, did you, what did you learn because um, you were both coming from the West, what did you? What mistakes did you make? What did you learn as you got started? 
Right. So my story is a little bit, it was almost very similar to Jay's. You know, I would just come in and preach like these beautiful three point sermons and they were just, they were good, you know, but everyone just kind of like nod and like, you know, oh, that, was, that was very good. Well, one day I shared like this story uh, about something that happened, a testimony that happened to me and about um, shame and how I had done something to embarrass someone and shame them. Uh, kind of unintentionally, I did it, it was very, just a very American and uh, very American way. And then uh, God spoke to me about that mistake. I went back to this person and I said, I said, man, I was wrong. And I kind of took all that shame on myself and restored them to this place of honor. I mean, just putting it in the worldview terms. Mm -hmm. Well, when I shared that story, in the church Sunday when I preached, everyone stood up and clapped. It was like, <laughs> wow. oh, I just hit a home run. I don't even know what I did. <laughs> you know, but the Lord, you know, because we didn't have this worldview context or that language for worldview. But, you know, the Lord just said, hey, the, the people are coming from a very different starting place. And when yeah. you dial that in, you're joining what I'm trying to do in their lives. Mm -hmm. And we see this uh, in the story of Adam and Eve. They were ashamed and embarrassed and they covered themselves up because of their sin. And then God covers their sin. He makes, um, you know, he makes clothes for them and covers their sin. And so uh, that has a lot to do with the, the honor-shame worldview in my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. But kind of dialing that in, um, man, just really made a difference in our, our work in ministry there. Mm -hmm. Before we go too much further, I want to get a good definition of how you guys uh, think about intercultural evangelism. How would you Great. describe that? No, that's really good. Um, so a lot of people think of evangelism like they're trying to close a deal or they've got to make yeah, a sale. And, yeah, <laughs> like for me, it's like hellfire and brimstone. Right. Like, you know, it doesn't give me the, the feels. <laughs> right, right. So right. we're trying to dispel those notions. Um, and what we're trying to say is that God has started a conversation with everybody, even if those people don't admit it. Yeah. They may be like agnostic or atheist or indifferent or whatever. But we recognize God has started a conversation. Therefore, we want to listen to that conversation catch up on it, and move that conversation towards Christ. Now, particularly when you're dealing with people of a different cultural background, mm -hmm. we've described intercultural evangelism as the process of putting Christ at the center of someone's worldview in order to initiate them into Christian discipleship through culturally relevant starting points. So wow. in the book, we talk about four different major patterns, major mm -hmm. worldview patterns, and then identifying those as good starting points to enter into faith discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since you led us right there, if we could, let's just talk about the four worldviews that you address in your book. Um, we have guilt, justice, shame, honor, fear, power, indifference, and belonging. So, Bud, why don't you start us off talking about guilt, the guilt justice worldview? Sure. Yeah. Guilt justice is um, it's what we would see as the predominant worldview for, for the West, which would be okay. the United States, uh, Western Europe, uh, some of these countries like that. And really, it's um, predominant, like where you see individualism, uh, what we'd consider like personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, for example, a lot of times here in the States, when there's an auto accident or something like that, it's like, well, who was, who was responsible? Right. That's, that's like almost the first, the first question. question yeah. you know? we got to find out who's responsible for this. Mm. You know, that's very much uh, plays into that worldview. And so when we look at the gospel, then we see uh, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this example of like, you know, you're a sinner and you have all this red in your ledger. But Christ died for your sins and it's like he paid all your debt. Uh -huh. So you're now you're even you have you got zeroed out your account. You know, things like that. And so um, this is a lot of Romans talks about this. Uh, this aspect of the gospel. And so, yeah, that's a lot of it. And then, um, yeah, I can go into quite a bit, but really there's this thought of um, we have, there's one gospel for every single person and, and it makes sense in the same way. We don't want to treat anyone differently. We want to treat everyone identically. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Moon, if you could talk about fear power for just a minute. Yes. So the interesting thing is that like a lot of the popular methods like Four Spiritual Laws and Roman Road mm -hmm. and Evangelical Explosion was predicated on like the guilt justice worldview. And when people try those methods, they don't work. And then they assume either maybe I'm just not good at this, there must be somebody really gifted at it, as opposed to rethinking perhaps I'm starting at the wrong spot. So the fear of power was very much what we identified in the Bolsa area. 
they don't feel internally guilty for their mm-hmm. sin, but they have this fear of the spirit world that Christ then becomes the power of God for salvation. Now, we're finding in the Western world it also has traction for people who are addicted to okay. lots of different things, mm-hmm. lots of addictions yes. out there. Yeah, there are. And they may not feel like this internal guilt or outward shame or, you know, um, indifference, but what they are really looking for is power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want the power of God to yeah. overcome. So that's the starting point for their conversation. Yeah, okay. I think the example you used in the book was, I hide in my chicken. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Would you want to explain that? Because I don't think anybody else is going to know what I just meant. Yeah, so now you're talking about chicken theology. Right? <laughs> Where in the Bolsa area, there is a proverb about, which means we hide under the feathers of a chicken. Uh-huh. And for a Bolsa person, if they're hiding under those feathers, then whatever problems come along, that chicken will die for me instead of me. Okay. And then what they're saying is that whenever there's fear, I can hide under Jesus' feathers, mm-hmm. and he'll take the heat for me, mm-hmm. and therefore I won't have to like rest in my own fear uncovered mm-hmm. and protected. Yeah. yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah, that makes sense. But if we could talk about um, shame, honor. So here, here's something interesting. I'll talk about this aspect of it. When, I, when we came back from Brazil, um, I had seen a lot of the shame, honor culture there and how people really related to that, um, being invited into a family when they didn't have uh, maybe family to belong to. And um, when I got back here, I, you know, this town's full of millennials and even younger people and mm-hmm. millennials, you know, people call them uh, <laughs> Gen Z and Gen I. Yeah. Uh, they come up with all kinds of things. Yeah. And so I thought, Man, it's like they're more like people in Brazil than people in America. Interesting. So I started to do some research into this, and it talks about this a little bit in the book, too, is what has happened is uh, in the past generation, you would say, hey, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong or that's sinful. And people would respond to that. They'd go, yeah, you're right. That's not a good thing to do. But now people are like, so what? But then you change the conversation a little bit, and you say, don't do that, or I'll tell your friends, don't do that or I'll put it on social media that you're doing that. They're like, yeah. no, don't do not do that. I'll stop. Right. And so that brings in this element of there's this audience that sees what's going on, and there's, there, there's this embarrassment, there's this shame before this audience. And so uh, Christ, that's part of the honor shame, is to say, hey, Christ has said, I'm going to cover this, and so you don't need to be embarrassed anymore about your sins. You can come back into the community and the story that really talks about this in the scripture is the story of the prodigal son. Yes. You know, here's this guy. He goes out and he just does the most embarrassing thing for himself and his family. Very shameful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's out there feeding the pigs and he's, it's just like very humiliating for him. And he comes back and the father basically, uh, symbolically, he's covering everything with a robe. And in the community, he's saying, let's invite everyone and celebrate your return. There's no dwelling on his mistakes or anything like that. And so it's like this beautiful image of like, we're just going to cover your shame and restore you to your place of honor. Yeah. Yeah. Very beautiful image of Christ. Yeah, definitely. Dr. Moon, um, indifference and belonging. Yes, this is an area that we've been exploring for five years that we've done research in. And we're documenting that what happens is due to secularization, whether it's in schools or, Mm -hmm. or whatever, um, the end point of secularization is not atheism, but it's okay. indifference. Mm-hmm. So okay. that people don't feel any more like guilt for sin internally or out of shame or fear, but they're basically indifferent to the gospel. Kind of like a been there, done that. They're just not really feeling it. Oh, yeah. So what's happening is um, Jesus responds to that worldview very uniquely, and the analog is with Zacchaeus. Okay. So here's Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. So he's not trusted by the Jews at all, mm-hmm. and he's not really in with the Romans totally. He's kind of in the middle, but he's just really indifferent to the religious system of his day. And when Jesus comes to visit his house, he doesn't talk about guilt or fear or shame, but Jesus brings the disciples with him so that Zacchaeus feels like he belongs. And when he belongs in this community, then he's given new purpose for his life, and when he stands up and says that he'll defraud those that he has taken advantage of, That's when Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Mm -hmm. So we feel that there's a growing, particularly, say, university campuses, Gen Z, Mm -hmm. millennials, that increasingly 
what is really attractive to them of the gospel and a good starting point for understanding what Christ means to them is that they can belong and have a purpose. So belonging with purpose is the result of that. Yeah. I think about these questions, <laughs> the belonging and purpose, yeah. all the time, cool. really. Um, so how can we, because everybody we meet, because I'm gathering when we talk about, and I could be wrong, so feel right. free to correct me, but <laughs> when you talk about intercultural evangelism, it doesn't just mean that I went to Africa. Right. Like It could mean that my neighbor, who might have the same skin color as me, but might not, but who thinks about life differently than me, is that... Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For sure. So how can we learn to start thinking mm-hmm. and asking questions in such a way so that we can figure out which worldview is our primary one? Because we all have little pieces of different ones. And then how to engage other people in the worldview that they come from. Good. Well, one fun way that we've tried to help people do this is we developed a card game. That helps oh, I people love that. to identify. Yeah, it's fun. And I tell people just don't put money on the table. It's a card game. So um, we developed a card game to help people recognize and identify these four different worldviews and then recognize how they respond appropriately uh, mm-hmm. to these worldviews. And one person likened it to uh, batting practice, you know, at baseball. So you don't go out, you know, and First time you hit the ball is when you're standing in front of this guy who's going to throw a fastball at you. Right. You have some practice, like, yeah. you know, you swing the bat around. So what we say is we do this card game, and we, we teach that at Asbury, and we have uh, cohorts that go through it for the okay. last six years. And it's like batting practice because the more they practice with a card game that's fun mm-hmm. and enjoyable, then the more competence they have and the more confidence they gain so that when they're face-to-face with a relative or a neighbor, Mm -hmm. they start to identify which worldview the person's engaging in and know where to start a faith conversation. Okay. Yeah. How do... Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to jump in too. You know, and practically, uh, some people may read this book and they'll think, well, you know, I got this neighbor and, and I feel like I should share something with them. And I think really one of the things that emphasizes uh, in the book is you're trying to join a conversation, you're not trying to start it from zero. And so you're going in there and you're listening to their story mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're doing this double listening. What's going on in their story, but how is God at work in their life? Okay, because God, like we said uh, earlier, God's always at work in everyone's life, trying to draw them to himself. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to feel like, I got to jumpstart this from zero. We just have to th- feel like, hey, I just need to join in the conversation that's already going on. And so that's going to take a little bit more quietness on my part, a little more listening, and a little more patience than we have typically uh, exemplified in our in our evangelism models in the past. <laughs> right. It's, what I hear you saying is it's building that relationship yes. way before you start really thinking about You're thinking about it, maybe, but before you start saying the words to invite to church to talk about addiction, any of that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And you're exactly right. This book was written for practitioners, for people who don't practice. Not simply missionaries going far away, but anybody engaged in this world, say say we're in the U.S. context, most likely you're going to meet somebody from a different worldview. Yeah, for sure. And therefore, what we're trying to do is help people understand which worldview people inhabit, in order where to start those conversations. Mm-hmm. And we say that you're not trying to destroy somebody's faith system. So you don't have to destroy, say, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, but understand the worldview upon which those religious systems are built. And you okay. gauge at the worldview level, then you start to uh, engage biblically with the worldview that creates some change to move them towards Christ. Okay. Yeah, and I'll just jump in there too. A lot of times in the past, Evangelism was kind of portrayed as this adversarial relationship. Yes, yeah, we are so. against other people, and instead now we're saying no, we're for people, and we are for what God is doing in their life. Mm-hmm. We're trying to actually work with them and take away that aspect of like, oh man, we gotta, we have to show them we are right that they are wrong, you know, because most people uh, somewhere in their heart they realize we don't need to tell them they're wrong. They already have that. The, the Holy Spirit's ready to work, even if they aren't yeah. Christians. And like uh, Jay said, even if they're atheists, there's this, there's, we believe there's this little notch somewhere in their heart where the Holy Spirit's at work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In your book, you talk about this 
beautiful story um, from India about offering people water, and the man was dying of thirst and wouldn't take the water because it was from a cup from a man that wasn't part of his caste system. And then he received the water. Somebody got the water in a cup that was acceptable to him. And so you were using that as a description of why why contextualization is so important. So that's a physical example. Why is it so why is contextualization so important in how we share the gospel? Yeah, what we're saying is that um, these people have different worldviews, and once you start to recognize those, then you're starting to scratch the itch. In other words, you're starting to address where God's already at work. Mm -hmm. So it it does require that double listening that Bud was talking about. And oddly enough, it sounds like you're becoming a good friend, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as you're becoming a friend, then friends help each other. Friends guide each other. Friends mentor each other and kind of bring them along. And, and we think that's probably a better metaphor than like a used car salesman. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so as you get used to identifying these patterns, yeah. then you have useful starting points. And it comes across as a friend helping another friend mm-hmm. as opposed to a used car salesman saying, don't look under the hood, but just buy this. Right, right. <laughs> How do we learn to recognize if it's a power issue, guilt issue, fear issue, indifferent issue? So I would just say, you know, um, slowing down a little bit, you know, um, like we've mentioned before, in the book we talk a lot about um, we're trying to shift the paradigm a little bit. And mm-hmm. instead of feeling like when I talk to this person, I, if they don't commit to Christ, then I have failed in evangelism. And so we're trying to shift that paradigm to where we think, how have I moved this person towards Christ? And so... It just really involves a lot of listening and more conversation and and some discernment. You know, as you talk to people, um, we mentioned in the book there uh, the story where um, I think is it the Wicca story where you're like, hey, this isn't really uh, a power fear issue, which you would think of as someone who is practicing Wicca, but they're really uh, what was it indifferent? You said that they yeah. So they're what we try to do in, in the book help out here is each of these four worldviews we give you questions to work through yes oh i love that so like for the honor shame type of thing you say you know perhaps instead of starting with like a presentation why don't you invite them to your house and express hospitality Mm -hmm. or even visit their house so that you give honor to them Mm -hmm. and that starts off a conversation Mm -hmm. where honor is restored and it's really kind of getting underneath of where people are in order to find out where to start with mm-hmm. them. So each of the worldviews, um, we've given like people steps at the end okay. to think through, at, think these kind of questions, and even work through it in your own mind as you're talking to different people. Okay, I love that. Yeah, that's great. Would you say what would you say is the first step if we if we want to take the first step of evangelism for the people that come across our our path? Yeah, my recommendation. Um, you read this book here, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, I, I, I'm advocating the card game in the sense that it gives you a little bit of practice. Yes. Okay, how do people get the card game? Uh, they can either contact me or the uh, digitalbiblecollege.com. Okay. We'll link all that in the we'll show link that notes. There. Yeah, we'll link and, it. And while we're talking about those things, uh, we do have a, a discount code yes, for this was, book, 30% yeah. off. Yeah, um, it is. I'll give the code. Go ahead and give it right now. It is Avange21, E-V-A-N-G-21, and that works if you order the book from ivpress.com for yes. 30% off. And so we'll have all that linked in the show notes, too. Excellent. So um, as you're starting to talk to people and engage in conversation, yeah. um, each of the chapters talk about different things to look for Okay. and, and how to start creating that conversation that gets traction with their world and then start thinking about areas in your own life where God has shown God's self to you. Maybe it's been like in an honor-shame area, or maybe it's been a guilt-justice area. Mm-hmm. So that when you then know how to respond to them, like biblically, what biblical story yeah. kind of addresses that? Think about your own story in there. So we advocate like this three-story approach, where you listen really well to that person's story, to know where that place is to engage. And then you're able to engage your own story like in a, in a relevant area, which uh-huh. is usually what friends do for each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then third, you say, well, you know, also I know somebody else who is engaged in this. And there's a biblical story that you can offer. So those three stories come together in order to help move people uh, further along in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. 
I love that. So one question that has been I've been really thinking about is if this is so important as Christians to tell other people about Jesus, and I believe that it is, why aren't we all doing it? I mean, because <laughs> yeah. if hell is a real place, mm. then why aren't we doing everything we can to tell people about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, um, you know, one, I'll just say one of the things that happened is uh, in the in the Great Awakening in the in the even in the 1800s and 1900s when there was just this idea of we want to get as many people saved as quickly as possible, most efficiently as possible. And so everything got refined down into a system or a message. Well, as uh, I think Jay mentioned earlier, suddenly that really wasn't resonating with people as worldviews shifted and, um, you know, the way people were that we met around us were just different. And so suddenly everyone thought, oh, um, some different thoughts. Maybe the gospel's not relevant. Um, maybe uh, I'm just not good at evangelism. You know, I'm, I'm tired of get people getting upset at me when I'm trying to explain the gospel to them. You know, no one wants to do anything that frustrates both them and the person they're trying to reach, right? And yeah, suddenly definitely. It's like, oh, man, it's really easy to dislike evangelism. Well, this, you know, what we're really advocating here is that there's a system, there's a way to share the gospel that speaks to people's heart. And instead of like feeling like I need to get them to make this decision, mm-hmm. we're saying we're trying to point them towards Christ. George Hunter has done research in this area, and he mentions sometimes it takes up to 30 different people, uh, thirty we could consider 30 different touches where until people come to Christ, you know, um, and people have done research in different areas, but it just it just shows that um, we are one one person on that on that helping that person get towards get to Christ. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that everybody has seen a bad example of evangelism, <laughs> and they are told almost that this is the one silver bullet. This is how you do it. Yeah, and they try it and it falls flat. Yeah. So they assume, okay, maybe I'm not that guy. I'm never good enough. Mm-hmm. That I'm not a Billy Graham type of thing. So right. maybe somebody right. else. And the other side of it is they've seen what they do not want to be. Yeah. Like you see somebody yelling on the corner or whatever. You mm-hmm. say, I don't want to be that. So between those two, I, I can never be this and I do not want to be that. They pretty much wash their hands up and say, you know what? That's for other people. Yeah. Um, I think another factor happening, uh, particularly in our culture, is people get distracted really easy. And we almost like amuse ourselves mm-hmm. to death. Like they have so many other things going on. And when you talk about evangelism, it kind of gets on the back burner. And even some of the, like the Barner research, you know, is showing that millennials in particular aren't so sure if evangelism should be done. You know, and I think it's because of those bad examples or I'm never good enough for this, as well as they're already distracted with lots of other stuff to do and they don't see the connection of it. Yeah. No, that makes sense because... I'm not sure I'm quite in the millennial generation, but I guess I'm just, I've kind of asked this question before, but I have read your book and I would definitely recommend it, but I don't think, I think I'm being, I think I'm telling the truth when I say, I don't think I've ever told anybody about Jesus, not because I don't Mm. care, but because I don't know exactly how to go about doing it. So I'm curious, how can somebody like me take the first step to do this? Very good. I would say that you're young. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it's most likely, according to our research, the high percentage of millennials are indifferent. And, and therefore, let's assume that, and as you're listening to people, it may be wrong. Maybe there's like some addiction, there's a fear yeah. power, maybe there's some shame issues. But let's say you're starting off and starting to listen through, okay, 50% or so are going to be indifferent. Well, when I start to share with them, I'll probably share more about how my relation with Christ has made me like be a part of a larger community yeah. where I feel accepted and I feel like I've come home. Maybe even come home to a family I never had but wanted or maybe come home to a family I had and lost. And, and as you're sharing that, you start to share also that I now um, have a, a greater purpose in my life and maybe even invite them into like a Habitat Humanity Build or a neighborhood cleanup mm-hmm. or whatever. And so what you're doing is you're recognizing that these are longings that are deep in their soul. And you're explaining in your life how God has met that and satisfying that and inviting them into it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, as you're listening to their conversation, though, they may take you a different direction, and that often happens. So as a result of being aware of these, like, four different worldviews, you're knowing which way to go based upon how they converse with you. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say this, too. One of the examples we use in the book, too, is that the worldviews are like these sound, is like a soundboard. So everybody has at least a little bit of one of these worldviews in your own life. And so if you think back and reflect back on your own experience, you may not be predominantly in that one worldview, but you can mm-hmm. probably think of an example um, and where somehow how Christ worked in that in your area of your life. Yeah, yeah. You make it, I think, sound so easy in a way <laughs> because you've boiled it down to just being friends with people. Yeah. Doing what friends do, being a good listener, yeah. and then but having meaningful conversations as friends do. Right. right. So it's always intentional. You know, there's intentionality yeah. in it. Yeah. And that um, there is always like spiritual activity happening around people. And, yeah. and this is actually a work of the spirit. We're trying to cooperate with that. Yeah. So there's no formulas in the book and there's no like step one, two, three, follow this and everything works out great. No cookbook. Kind of <laughs> but it's given you kind of uh, pointers of what to look for as the wind of the spirit is blowing the sail of the boat to mm-hmm. make it move. What are some of those indicators that we look for in order to determine where people are receptive and where to guide that faith conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we come back again and again to these different biblical examples. And we think of the work of Christ on the cross for us kind of as this gemstone, as this diamond. So when you hold it up to the light, when you look at it from different angles, you're seeing different lights reflected different colors reflected through it it's not just only one thing and so that's uh, that's a lot like what the gospel is it helps us have this more robust view of the work of christ yeah yeah definitely one of the things you've also talked about is meeting the needs of people like establishing wells yeah. in africa um, working for social justice initiatives and things like that how do these types of initiatives ministries whatever whatever word you want to call yeah. it how do they demonstrate the truth of the gospel in Deed, word, and lifestyle. Great, great. I like the way you put that. (laughs) Um, So we call this holistic evangelism. And um, when you really think about the holistic gospel, I mean, it embodies all of that. So one thing we mentioned in the book, that Jesus never shared the gospel the same way twice, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So we never had like a formula, even though we try to codify it, make a formula out of it. Mm -hmm. You never had a formula there. Mm -hmm. But you see him demonstrating the kingdom through his words, as well as the deeds that he did and the lifestyle he lived. And when those three are congruent, when your words and your deeds and your lifestyle are all pointing to Christ, it's a very powerful witness to Christ. It's very hard for people to shake. They they may not agree and they may contend, but they have a hard time dismissing it. Yeah. So we're calling it the holistic evangelism, and it's a way to be able to not just say the gospel, but portray it. And uh, one friend of ours, Mark DeMoz, who is a leader of the Mosaics, multicultural church planning, mm-hmm. he said, you know, in the, six, the previous generation, um, they were all about, like, proclamation, like proclaiming the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Billy Graham era, et cetera. Yes. He says, you know, for the younger generation, like Gen Z and Millennial, et cetera, he says, it's really about demonstration. They want to see it demonstrated in front of them. If this gospel is really true, then demonstrate it so we can see it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and I just want to throw in this one little um, disclaimer because sometimes it, talk, it sounds almost as if we're talking poorly about some of these tools like the Four Spiritual Laws or right. mentioning Billy Graham. It's not that at all. It's like they were tremendously effective and powerful in a certain time and place, but the United States in the 21st century ha- is in a different time and place, and we need, the church needs to recognize that and embrace that as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you said that because yeah. it's definitely not criticizing anything right. that has been done, just right. trying to move right. it forward. You both have global backgrounds. How do you see God at work both in our American culture and globally? Yeah, this is like, <laughs> it's a great question <laughs> That's to a answer. big question. Yeah. It's a big one. It's really fun to answer because yes. in a nutshell, we're living in unprecedented times where <laughs> unprecedented numbers of people are coming to Christ really? in ways that we have never seen before. Even like Muslims, Hindus and these church planning movements. I mean, for example, like the last 70 years or so, um, Sub-Saharan Africa has gone from like 24% Christian to about 48%. That's huge. Yeah. And this little peninsula called South Korea 
If you take all of the Presbyterians in the United States and multiply by two, South Korea has more Presbyterians. So that's the, the huge growth. Wow. Uh, and this is happening worldwide. And when I tell this to people, they often don't believe it <laughs> because they're, look, they're living in, the say, the U.S. They say, well, I don't see it happening around me. But there's this global work of God. And, and for some reason, God's allowed us to be a part of this mm-hmm. time. So what we're trying to identify in the book is perhaps the areas where the gospel is like exploding and yeah. churches are moving, perhaps they have something to teach us. And how do we learn from that well so that we can apply it in our own pluralistic society mm-hmm. where it's more likely you're going to engage people of different faith backgrounds than ever before? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But what are some things that we can take away from other cultures and apply them to our, our everybody listening is not from America, I realize that, sure. but apply to the Western culture. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I would say this: you know, some some other cultures they readily embrace those cultural values, and for example, collectivism, mm-hmm. um, being inclusive. And so, here in the United States, for example, one out of eight people is an immigrant. Well, they relate to that. They relate to you saying, "Hey." You know, let's hang out. Tell me about your family. What's going on? And not being in a hurry and not not being rushed. People relate to it. Even, um, I'm going to just back up a little bit. Seven out of eight Americans have asked for prayer or prayed for healing for someone. That's stats in the book. People relate to power and fear. Fear mm-hmm. of uh, sickness and injury. And so people respond when you say, they're telling you and pouring out their heart. And you say, do you? Do you mind if I just pray? Uh, and instead of making it something really, you know, we have to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just say, hey, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer, blessing from God and God the Creator. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to be like put it in this churchy language. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that just turns people off. They don't even understand what's what we're talking about. So um, some of those things that are really common in other parts of the world, I think. People here are ready to embrace, but there's a certain fear on our part mm-hmm. because we feel like we have to do it in this certain formulaic approach or it's invalid. And I think we just yeah. need to lay that aside and realize if I can just get this person even just a couple inches closer to Christ, I've done something right. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, we would have never written this book if we hadn't engaged other cultures right. like, deeply. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the genesis of it. And it's really saying that in the Western world, we have a lot to learn yes. from the global yes, church. Yes, we do. If we're willing to listen. And we try to describe like the shame-honor worldview that's largely you know, coming out of collectivist societies and this fear-power worldview mm-hmm. that's coming out of, say, like folk kind of cultures. And, and even our friendships like in Europe are teaching us more about indifference. Because yeah. unfortunately, mm-hmm. they're further ahead of the secularization <laughs> yes. process than uh, we are in the U.S. So we've got a lot to learn about how they're dealing with that and engaging mm-hmm. it. And we're trying to like explain that in the book and say these are lessons from the global church that can help us mm-hmm. if we're willing to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. You touched touched on it a little bit earlier in the conversation, Doctor Moon. But how do we reach to reach the millennials, the indifferent generation? As there, uh, you talked about this research in your book that I found especially fascinating from David Kinneman and talking about the questions and issues that this generation is thinking about. I think about these things all the time, like searching for identity, anxiety, um, loneliness, figuring out what your purpose is in life. It's not just about having a job, like it has to have meaning. And what matters beyond what I do? Like, are people going to miss me? When I'm 100 and die, yeah, you know. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So we talked with David Kinneman, and we started to collaborate that with the other research we've done and others mm-hmm. have done. We started to realize perhaps it's easily described as this belonging with purpose. So if you look at those areas that, that Kinneman's talking about and others, it really can be boiled down to there's this deep longing to, to belong, mm-hmm. like to feel like, People know my name, and, and I'm part of this mm-hmm. family, and like I feel like there's a place that people uh, know me. Because one of the paradoxes of the say, millennial generation in particular is this great value of privacy. Yeah. And the, the bummer with that is that uh, privacy and community are like a seesaw. Like the more <laughs> you have of one, the less you have of the other. Yes. If you have high privacy, you have low community. If you have high community, low privacy. So <clears throat> what um, happens is you get such a high value for privacy 
that what it does, it drives people to have a high yearning for community because they're lacking it, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. So that's why we're saying that this is what Christ offers to those millennials. They have this thirst and this hunger mm-hmm. for community, and Christ offers that community with this body of believers. Mm-hmm. And, and on top of that, <clears throat> like Zacchaeus we talked about, yeah. there's also this um, yearning for having significance, to have a purpose to life. We're not yes. just kind of running around the sun for a few times, you know. <laughs> so <clears throat> offering the fact that, that Christ gives us this purpose, that we are agents of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. as a part of this church. As Nubikin mm-hmm. says, we're like a sign agent, foretaste of the kingdom of God for the sake of the world. And we get to participate in that. You know, the greatest purpose that we know of. Right? Yeah. So um, giving people that opportunity to participate in that. Like I said earlier, I know several folks that came to Christ, not through a direct presentation of the gospel, but they went on a neighborhood cleanup type of thing. Or okay. they went on a yeah. certain trip with a certain group. And they realized, you know what? These Christians aren't like the ones I see on TV yeah. or the way that they're stereotyped. And they have something that I need, and that kind of brought them in their faith journey. Yeah. So I think, particularly for like a younger generation, like the belonging with purpose is an easy way to kind of summarize the the yearnings and also Mm -hmm. the place where the gospel is a great relevant starting point. Yeah. Yeah. I One of the things that I think about that you kind of, I want to say debunked in your book, (laughs) is that our career doesn't equal our calling. Mm. So if our career, because I have thought my career equaled right. my calling. If our career doesn't equal our calling, how do we find our purpose? <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, you know, Oz Guinness has that dual uh, calling. That your first calling is uh, to love and serve God. Yeah. And then your secondary callings are to fulfill that primary calling. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there's lots of ways, <clears throat> either different stages of life or even at the same time of life, you can fulfill that primary calling through these different vocations that you do. And this mm-hmm. vocation comes from that word vocare, which is Latin for calling. Uh-huh. Right? So <clears throat> this resonates with the discussion about co-vocational ministry mm-hmm. and co-vocational living. So as you know, I'm a professor at Asbury Seminary, <laughs> but I'm also like a um, teaching pastor of a church plant. Okay. And I also have a small business like Airbnb that I do. And, okay. And it may sound schizophrenic, (laughs) but what it really is, my main primary calling is to love and serve God. And all of those individual secondary callings are all geared towards that. Yeah. So instead of being schizophrenic, it's just you wear different hats at different times. And I'm not placing my identity in those hats. My identity is in that primary calling. And how do those Mm -hmm. secondary ones move towards that primary calling? Yeah. And Bud, I think you're pretty similar being co-vocational. Yeah, I, I'm involved in quite a few things, <laughs> and um, you know the the thing is, sometimes we get trapped thinking, "Man, can I find that exact right right job?" And instead of thinking that, thinking, "How can I serve God's purposes where I am?" Mm. You know, and that really really helps us kind of resonate a little bit more. Uh, the co-vocational, like you said, I, instead of thinking. I must do this one thing, right. thinking I can serve God in a variety of ways and wherever I am. And in fact, especially for Christians, being in the marketplace puts us in relationship with the people that we most want to reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, it was, I think it was a fallacy in the past where people thought the only way to really have a sacred calling was to either be a pastor or a missionary. Mm-hmm. Those are the two options. And the others are kind of lesser than, <clears throat> you know. Yeah. And what we're trying to say is, no, perhaps God gives you these different secondary callings at different stages of life yeah. in order to have a sacred calling inside of that, not in spite of it. Yeah. So I, I do some engineering work for people. And when they first meet me as an engineer, um, they judge me based on how well I'm, I'm helping them, mm-hmm. how much value I create. Right. It's later in the conversation that they find out that I'm a professor, I'm a pastor, a teaching pastor, et cetera. And if they had, if that was their first introduction to me, it would have guided the conversation and stilted it in a different way. But since they encounter me as an engineer at first, I create some social capital. And usually, I'm not kidding you, almost every week, it ends up with some kind of faith discussions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's prayer um, have people at the Airbnb, uh, she said, um, 
started to talk to me, and I said, well, would you like me to pray for you? And she said, wow, I've been looking for spiritual guidance. <laughs> would you pray with me? I'd love that. And then at the yeah. end, she said, can we keep in touch? So my wife keeps in touch with her by email. That's <laughs> and awesome. And this is right in the midst of simply an Airbnb encounter. Yeah. Right? yeah. So what I'm trying to emphasize is instead of dichotomizing these uh, sacred jobs and these secular mm-hmm. jobs, what if all of this is subsumed under this primary calling to love and serve God, and each of those individual jobs, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, a missionary, whatever, are, are secondary right. to fulfill that primary calling. And kind of come out of your giftings too, right? Because yeah. yeah. what I hear you saying, it kind of takes the pressure off of right. I'm I'm looking for a job or I'm in the job that I'm in. I'm, am I in the right job? Yeah. And, yeah, right. you know, am I going to miss yeah. whatever? But it's just loving and serving listening to other people in whatever job you have yeah right. yeah yeah i love yeah. that we have talked about many things and we have one question <laughs> that we ask everybody before we wrap up the show but before we do is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about already well, one thing i'd like to make available to all the listeners is that every semester we have a free to students a training seminar that's like one hour a week that helps people think through these things like pluralism, like we're talking about, okay. and secularism, and um, individualism, relativism, all these type of things. This is free, and it's offered. We've done it the last six years or so. Okay. So I'd like to invite your listeners to participate in that. Um, we've now developed a phone app that cool. um, people can access that and do the training, and then they just develop some more competency and some confidence. We found in our research in doing this for six years that people's uh, confidence increases 100%, and their competence, their abilities, increase 300%. Wow. Yeah. So we've been encouraged to continue doing this, and Knox Fellowship is an organization that has partnered with Asbury Seminary to develop this and okay. encourage it. And this is offered free of charge, and it's available for Okay. Listeners. And the, the cohort is just for students, is that correct? Well, it has been. But, okay. Um, it well, might not app, be now. <laughs> well, you know, on the phone app, they can take it even if they're not a student. Okay. So they have access to it. What is the name of the phone app so people can find so, it? So uh, Nobe, G-N-O-W-B-E, is the um, organization or the platform okay. upon which this uh, practical evangelism for the 21st century is the name of the course inside okay. of Nobe. Okay. So if you download the Nobe app okay. on your phone, then you go in there and you'll find this course. Okay. So students can take the cohort right. on campus. Yes. Other listeners just need to download the Novi app. Right. And, and then do look it on for that phone. course, Practical Evangelism for 21st Century. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll link that all too. Do you have anything to add, Bud, before I ask our last question? Wow. I mean, it's just been great just to be here. I feel, uh, I mean, it's just great to be able to share about this book. Yeah. One of the things I was just thinking, um, it's just fun to talk about things that excite your soul. So yeah. that's uh, yeah. just been a lot great yeah. to be here. It's been such a delight to have you both here. So, Well, thanks for all your energy, too. And to this. It's <laughs> great to see that you read the book and you're thinking it through and that it connects. Um, we've had lots of positive feedback with people right. that have, that they say something like what you said earlier. You know, I've never really shared my faith with anybody. And we're saying, you know what, well, let's think back on areas where you've seen God at work in somebody mm-hmm. and you're just kind of nudging them in a direction that they see God at work in that. Or, or maybe think through the next time somebody talks about one of these different worldviews, where could I share some of my story or maybe part of God's story in that? Mm-hmm. And it just makes you a little bit more prepared to be able to engage. Right. I found that really helpful because to me it's always been, do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? Right. Which is right. a super hard question. I mean, yeah. I feel like it's a hard question. Like, right. where right. do you just drop that in when you're having coffee, you know? <laughs> but just, yeah. like, sharing life experiences and right. being intentional about pointing those experiences to reflect your own experience with God. Right, because, you know, as relationships thicken, at some point along the way, there will be a, a greater... It will come to... That. It right. could become to but that we don't, question. like, judge whether we have participated in God's journey by have I asked them to receive Christ this day or not. Right, you know? right, yeah. right. Yeah, I found that super helpful. So the one question that we ask everybody, <laughs> um, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? <laughs> That's great. We can start with you, Bud, if you want. Well, um, so kind of related to our topic or just anything? Anything. 
I mean, you can be binging Netflix right now. If that is, <laughs> if that is helping you thrive in your life, oh. hiking, riding bikes, anything, whatever yeah. is. So I love hiking, but I would say one thing, uh, one practice I've really put happened uh, over the last year is I do regular writing and okay. journaling. Okay. And so I've kind of, uh, that's something I've started. I, I tried that many times in my past. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a lot of success with it. And so I, I finally um, found some good cues for that. And that's really been helpful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I'm a journaler, so oh, good for I, you. I love that. Yeah. Dr. Main, what about you? Yeah, I love to get out in trees. <laughs> so, so to explain that a little bit like um, in, up in them or? so we built some tree houses okay like like literal tree houses which you can find online and if you ask me i'll give you the url okay um, bud actually was partner with me in this and uh, these tree houses have like hot water shower toilet kitchen you know all that kind of stuff but what happens is what i find is you get out amidst all these trees yeah. Um, and this has been some research in some of the Nordic countries. They found that after about eight to ten minutes, the this part of the brain that produces anxiety starts to cool down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And after about 50 minutes, the part of the brain that produces creativity or, or new thinking starts to light up. So what I've tr- tried to do, and some of the writing of this book was there too, I'd go away to like get among the trees, like either in a treehouse or walk in the woods somewhere, mm-hmm. And I'll find that happens to me. Yeah. Where the anxiety goes down and the creativity opens up and just kind of life giving. So I'd yeah. encourage listeners to find something life giving. Make sure it's it's legal. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always legal to go into the forest, you know. But um, find something life giving. Like for me, it's like going to the forest and just getting in the canopy. And there's something that happens where I start to feel I come mm-hmm. back with life. Mm-hmm. And it, and the interesting thing about it, while it may sound kind of selfish that I'm going out to the trees just to, like, take care of Jay, right? mm-hmm. really, it's the most unselfish thing because if I don't have any life in me, I have nothing to give other people. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's students in the school or it's people in the church or clients that I'm working with, if I have life to give, then I've got a lot to give them. Yeah. So I think it's really one of the most unselfish things yeah. to find something, whether it's they call it forest bathing <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, find that and then utilize that because it's God's way of giving life to you. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate with both of those things. Cool. So thank you guys so yeah, much for sharing you. in this podcast. It's been a blast. Yeah, it has been. <laughs> yeah, we've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Bud and Dr. Moon. I hope you found this conversation helpful as we talked about ways to effectively engage others in conversations about Jesus in ways that make sense. If you haven't already, be sure to pick up a copy of their book, Effective Intercultural Evangelism, and listeners of the show receive a 30% discount when you order from ivpress.com and use the code EVANG21. That's E-V-A. A-N-G-21. Well, that's it for me today. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.